0: The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola.
1: Hi there and welcome to The Numinous Podcast where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. This episode is a compliment to the retreat I'm leading with my husband this fall at Hollyhock Lifelong Learning Center on Cortez Island. It's called Ritual and Practice for the Urban Homestead. And we'll tell you more about that at the end of this program. For now, I'd like you to listen to my guest, Matthew Remsky. Matthew is a writer and yoga teacher trainer. He writes about yoga and Ayurveda in the shadows of capitalism and climate change. He's been practicing meditation and yoga since 1996, sitting and moving with teachers from the Tibetan Buddhist Kripalu, Ashtanga, and Ayengar Systems. He's written eight books and recently, what I would call an explosive article in The Walrus called Yoga's Culture of Sexual Abuse, Nine Women Tell Their Stories. I'm very delighted to welcome Matthew to the podcast. I connected with him online. So Matthew, what identities do you lead with?
2: It's a great question. Uh, I I think they shift and are shifting as we speak but uh for the most part I work as a cultural critic within the yoga and uh meditation or global Buddhism industries and I do that sort of parallel like on top of um being a trainer uh a teacher trainer for um uh, programs in Canada and internationally and those two those two identities have a, you know, strange, sometimes frictious relationship that I'm sure we'll get into in a bit. But um, I'm trying to make it work, and I'm heading more into investigative journalism too, with regard to the um, uh, abuses and abuse patterns that I am witnessing and bearing witness to in in yoga and Buddhism communities. I try, if you know, I I think if if those professional identities have merit, it, it would be because um, I've learned a couple of things about my own identity that make my blind spots clear. Um, and I, I would say that um, being getting more and more clear day by day on what it means to be uh, white, male, heterosexual cisgendered and well housed and well supported by family and in a country with socialized medicine and um, you know in a relatively safe neighborhood and 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 these types of things has really put the um, the content of my work into focus and has allowed me to see where I have to constantly work to Uh, see the positions and try to listen into the feelings of people who don't share all of those, those advantages. So, um, you know, one big uh, part of that has been in recognizing, especially through the work that I've done on Ashtanga yoga and the, um, the tragedy of Joyce having, Patabi Joyce having assaulted his students for over 30 years is that I had to learn how to write, not just as an analyst of, uh, cults, but, um, or high demand groups, but also as somebody who, um, uh, understood what it meant to listen to victims of sexual assault, uh, which is not something that I've personally experienced. And I had a lot of help with that. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's a, there's a particular set of skills that go along with uh, creating victim-centered narratives and uh, for white men um, endeavoring to learn those skills there can be a lot of challenges and that's why I've reached out for a lot of help and I've I've received it from my editors of The Walrus but also my interview subjects uh, for pieces like that who have been so extraordinarily uh, brave and uh, clear with me about what it is they need from uh, reporting on their experience. So, um, yeah, I, I think, I think that begins to open that door, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank Is there you for,
2: else?
1: <laughs> well, no, I, I think the question that so many listeners, uh, probably had, I know I had, as you started to describe your work was how as a white did, did you learn, uh, about your blind spots and your privilege. So thank you for anticipating oh. that question. And, and, um, and so many thanks to your, your teachers, uh, your interview subjects and, and your editors, and I'm sure there are many others you didn't know, but, um, for, for doing that work, you know, to, to help you see what is so hard to see and, and it's made invisible to you as, as a, as a white dude. So how did you, how did you come to know so much about cults? How do you want to even define what, what, what is a cult? What's a high demand community? Are this they the same thing? Like, can you talk about that a little bit? That's very compelling.
2: The language, um, the, the definitional qualities of the language is, is, um, are, are pretty poor actually. Um, there is a certain amount of consensus within the cult analysis literature about what the social mechanisms of, of high-demand groups are. And the high-demand group is a synonym for the cult. And, and I like to switch up the words because uh, the word cult itself can be really inflammatory and isolating, especially for, for people within communities that that are being investigated or examined and mm-hmm. who haven't left them. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody wants to think of themselves as being part of a cult, but high-demand group is, is, a little bit, <laughs> is a little bit more digestible in the sense that... Uh, uh, many more people on the inside of an organization are going to be able to say, Hmm, yeah, I, I do, I do actually, um, acquiesce or serve, a, a, a you know, a, a high number of, of requests and, and there can be an opening there just language wise for mm-hmm. being able to examine one's relationship to, to a group. Um, are so, so, you know, in terms of the social psychology, there's certain markers that analysts look at, and they, there's tools for measuring. So Kathleen Mann has something called the Mind Model, uh, which is based upon uh, you know levels of manipulation. It's all acronyms, right? Manipulation, indoctrination, negation of individual self sense and agency, and then deception. Hmm. Uh, Steve Hassan has um, you know the Bite Model, which is. Uh, behavioral control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. Um, And then uh, there are earlier examples uh, coming from analysts like uh, Michael Langone, who described the sort of three pillars of the cultic organization as being deception, uh, dependence, and dread of leaving. Um, Now, the problem with, I feel, the problem with um, those models for looking at what... um, a high-demand group is tend to other the group itself, uh, and really obscure the fact that uh, there are many areas of our lives in which we engage in toxic social dynamics in in you know groupthink or herd behavior. Mm. And, uh, we don't necessarily think of those as being as damaging as, you know, belonging to the people's temple. And for sure, most of us don't die in relationship to, or, or because we're involved in uh, uh, the groups that we're involved in. But um, at the same time, I've been looking for a while for uh, seeing what the relational quality is within the high demand group and how it relates to, uh, you know, previous, the, the member's previous relational strategies. And I came across just last year, the work of uh, the new work, the innovative work of a woman named Alexandra Stein. Mm -hmm. uh, She uses attachment theory, uh, which, which exactly, which, which, you know, which is being used by basically every psychotherapist in the world Uh, to one degree or another, to describe what, uh, in a group sense, happens to the member in relationship to their fellows and to the leaders of a high-demand group. Uh, Her basic premise is that uh, the main thing that a group does and that perhaps defines a high-demand group is that uh, it begins to rewire a member's attachment patterns towards the disorganized so that they wind up... um, in a very charged and vigilant, but also sometimes even ecstatic state, mm-hmm. uh, uh, running towards uh, the, uh, the very source of care that is, or quote-unquote, care that is terrorizing them. And so, um, you know, her work has really helped me understand that uh, it's much more beneficial to Think about the types of relationships that we engage in in our everyday lives and try to assess their health um, rather than uh, thinking of the high demand group as some sort of monolithic, sealed, bubbled off organization that you get a secret password in to and then you're suddenly on the inside and you can't get out. Mm-hmm. Not really like that. The boundaries, of, the boundaries of high demand groups are usually fairly porous. Um, and, uh, so it, it, it creates looking at the relationships that are formed, uh, I find is a lot more, um, is a lot more effective and a lot more, a lot less stigmatizing as well to, uh, people who find themselves wrapped up in these situations.
1: Would you say then that like kind of one of from an attachment model, it's that easy to get in, but hard to get out. It's like th- there's this sort of um, courtship wooing period that lowers defenses um, and orients you towards this like, oh, this feels like a, a secure attachment figure. this this feels safe, this feels soothing, et cetera. And then just in those moments, there's something jarring happens. But y- your system is has been kind of lulled into the safety. And so right. it's hard to um, extract from that because it actually feels good as it's happening in a way
2: it feels it feels it can feel wonderful uh and i think the premise of it's easy to get in and hard to get out is is quite apt in the sense that as your relational patterns begin to change uh towards this highly charged um exchange in which you are constantly looking for the replenishment of the initial love bombing that you received from uh, the leadership or the leader themselves of the particular group. And while you're having that fail as well, at the same time, what the group is ten- tends to do is it tends to eliminate outside safe havens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it becomes very common for a group member to really believe that the only place that they can be safe is in the place where they're being harmed. Uh, and that's the that's the double bind that, that Stein starts to describe and that I've seen in just hundreds of, of you know, um uh, hundreds of, of pieces of literature and hundreds of, of interviews with with subjects who are either within or on the way out of groups like this yeah
1: so you've publicly um, shared about uh, having been in two different kinds of high demand groups two different cults and and left them so w- as you were coming across this research w- was that like ha- how there must have been quite a lot of recognition uh, after the fact of of what was happening and and perhaps that's very reorganizing for you but but can you talk a little bit ha- about your experience of finding yourself in that situation and and how you managed to extract yourself
2: right yeah well thank you first of all for saying finding yourself in that situation because that's that's exactly what it is it's it's not because usually the language is why did you join? why did you right. why did you go why why did you get messed up with that guy? why did you start believing those things and um, you know two two sort of key points in my post involvement research uh, came in the form well one one was you know encountering Stein's theory and realizing that um, oh, you know it's it's not just about how I Formed, you know, really dysfunctional relationships under false pretenses, uh, and they were highly charged in in you know those particular involvements. But uh, but before that, I I spoke with um, a cult researcher Kathleen Mann by phone, and, and she said one sentence that that relieved um, an incredible amount of of shame and guilt. And that was, uh, and for her, it's, it was an everyday, uh, you know, observation. She said, you know, people don't join cults. They delay leaving organizations that misrepresented themselves. Oh. And, and with that, and with that, and it's, and it's, you know, you could say that to, you could say that to, uh, a woman, for example, who had, um, suffered from sexual or domestic abuse for years and years at the hands of, of a spouse. Uh, and I think it would ring similar, right? Like you, you, didn't, <laughs> you didn't sign up for that. You didn't get married to that person for that. You, you delayed leaving for a bunch of different really good reasons, uh, something that was not as it seemed and uh, that you were also gaslighted about. You were also told as you were being harmed that you weren't being harmed, for instance. Mm-hmm. So um, so those, yeah, there's, a, there's been a couple of key moments that were really powerful, but rolling back before that, even before, um, while I was in the first high demand group, which was, which was the Asian Classics Institute, which was founded by Michael Roach. Um, you know, so this is 1996 to 1999. Uh, I got a letter that I've written about uh, from a friend um, that was like this, I still have it. It's, 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 I think it was, I think it's typewritten and it's, and it's, and it says, um, you know, I, you know, I know I'm worrisome and I know that I'm neurotic and uh, I don't have my life sorted out, but, and, and there's a part of me that's really envious of you for having found the way, the truth and the life. uh, But you know, I'm wondering if there's a part of you once you're, you know, finished with your Buddhist enlightenment fetish that will still have time for somebody like me. And this is a really, this is a really close friend of mine. And I remember reading it and, and kind of dissociating as I read it and thinking, oh, that guy, you know, he's, 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 he's sweet, but like, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get what I'm what I'm going through and, and I understand his concern but sort of, but I didn't actually. Mm. And, And years and years later, I realized that, that it, it was contact like that with somebody who, you know, was, uh, you know, somebody, somebody who knew me in my former life, who had a relationship with me outside of the demands and the logic of the group, uh, who loved me. Um, not because of where I was placed in the group, or how much I knew about the group, or how much I loved the group, but loved me because of a number of other reasons. Mm. Uh, that 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 contact was a kind of reality check upon um, uh, my the rest of my commitments. Mm. And even though, and even though it didn't like, you know, spring me out of jail. Uh, it did sink in somewhere and I think it gave me the the capacity to hear the next little hint from somebody like that, that somebody dropped that, oh, there's an outside world where you are loved for other reasons. And uh, there's an outside world where you can be secure and not reliant upon this set of this machine that you are, that you are wrapped up in. And so those were, those were really, really precious moments. And, um, and yeah i i think too that that my previous learning in um my my i don't want to say like academic study cuz i just really went to college for 2 years but it it was an effective 2 years and i and i read a lot of of cultural and literary theory when i was there and i and i returned to that uh you know after i got out of the second group um and uh, suddenly, you know Luce Irigaray and 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 sisu and and um, and and foucault and uh, and, sp- and specifically foucault 's analysis of power um, really began to speak to me in a way that I could understand because I had had this visceral experience of having been in uh, a, like a control group
1: hmm. And would you say that as a again as like as a white man, you you would have been a younger man at that time? But uh, was that shocking? Was that the first time that you realized, like, oh my god, (laughs) you know, like I on the one hand I hold a lot of power uh, in the society, and on the other hand, even still, I managed to find myself beguiled and um,
2: duped. It's such a great question, and I think that no, there was there was about. Um, There was about 10 years between me being able to use even the cultural and literary and subaltern theory that I loved to Uh, Be self-reflective. I I really just externalized it. I I used it to I used it to critique the man in the form of the Cult leaders that I've been involved with Uh, But but it yeah, no it 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 did not it did not sink down to the level of wow It's actually a shitload worse for a bunch of other people Uh, and and let me let me start to take a, a look at that so that was I I feel that that um and there were two moments for that. Um, one was, or I don't know, two sequences. And, and one was for me, maybe around um, 2004, 2005 when I started reading um, uh, somebody who might be controversial to your, to, your, um, to your listenership, but at the time I found his writing really powerful, uh, Derek Jensen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and,
1: <laughs> yeah, what a controversial figure. I, I have right. also read a lot of deep green resistance stuff, right. but Not so much of his uh, particular writing, but others. We are, we Well, there was stuff.
2: there was a there. There was something about there was something about his. Uh, I found it easier. I think okay. So so I, what we're talking about. I feel that where we're where we're exploring harmony is, um, you know, how how do you how does one start seeing. Uh, relational power and being self-reflective about it, mm-hmm. even if one has been exposed to something like a high demand group that has, that has completely screwed over your agency and and exploited you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the reason that I started with, I think the reason that that Derek Jensen was really effective for me um, and, you know, then he went on to have a bunch of adopt a bunch of views and positions that, that, I, I don't agree with and, and that I think are, are really unfortunate to, to, you know, scuttle a whole, a whole movement over. Um, he, he said, um, there's this opening, I think there's an opening page in one of his books where he says every morning I have to wake up and make a decision about whether or not I'm going to write more criticism or if I'm going to go and blow up a, uh, dam and and I, and I have to make that decision every morning and I'm not quite sure how to do it. And I was like, oh, here I am. <laughs> and I was way far away from that question. I was like, I have to wake up every morning and try to figure out how I can be the best yoga teacher I can be <laughs> for a bunch of people in Cabbage Town, Toronto, in a very <laughs> segregated neighborhood. And like... So, so there was this kind of call from the wild of, of, you know, look at what your choices are, and look at how enmeshed you are in trying to make consumer economy look good and uh, and feel spiritual, and and so that kind of got a little ball of I think profitable self hatred rolling uh, back then, and then and then really it was the it was the eruption of. Um, or the sudden visibility, let's say, of the literature that poured out of the, the Black Lives Matter movement. That, mm-hmm. um, and I think specifically, and I feel like really embarrassed. I, I think I don't know how you can avoid being embarrassed about, like, knowing that there was a moment as a white person that you realized that you hadn't heard of the talk before. That, right? Um, right? That that, and and. I think by that, of course, by that point, uh, my son Jacob had been born, and um, and and I don't know whose description of the talk I came across, but I like I think it stopped my I think it I think it changed the direction of my life like within about five minutes.
1: Yeah, can so I realized you pause because some people right. are like, "What talk is he talking about?" Right. So,
2: so that so, so that so the talk is 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 you know common within. You know, POC culture commonly understood in POC culture as, as being the moment where uh, the parents, the caregivers, sit down with the 11, 12, 13-year-old uh, young black boy and or a person of color, and um, tell him how not to be killed by police officers, mm-hmm. uh, tell him how not to get in trouble with the law, tell him how to uh, avoid um, you know, systemic racial oppression. And, and, but the, the killing part was, was what I, was what I focused on. And I think around the same time I've written about this as well. Um, I, I had this like, um, you know, for a number of things going, reasons going back in my past, I, I had this overwhelming, uh, almost uncontrollable rage response in the face of bullying. And, um, I'm driving the car with uh, my partner Alex and with Jacob and there's construction in the road and there's a there's a this big burly white cop in the in, in the intersection he's directing traffic and he's got aviator glasses on and I don't understand his hand signals and he starts swearing at me and I can't hear what he's saying but he's like turning red swearing at me and something like broke inside as it does periodically for me like I would say once every two or three years, something like this happens. Um, and, uh, I pulled over the car with my family inside and I got out of the car and in the middle of traffic, I almost like ran, marched straight up to the guy myself turning purple saying, you don't have the right to swear at me. Give me your badge number. Uh, and, um, and i think in the aftermath of that i remember the talk and i was like i was like it didn't occur to me for a moment that i should be physically afraid of him it didn't occur to me for now this is in toronto so it's not in it's not in chicago or it's not it's not it's not in a in a in a you know a handgun uh city mm-hmm. but um but like I did something. I did something that was the automatic and uh, like completely unconscious, reflexive performance of entitlement. And I did it, and it felt good. And I got to have the feeling of it feeling good. <laughs> not only was I not afraid of doing it, but doing it, I could feel good, and I could feel like I was less repressed, and I could feel like I had. And so, and so, there was actually this like not only could I do it, I could like, I could, I could feel therapeutic about it (laughs) and, and and so, and and I could get back at the guy who did that thing to me and the blah, blah, right? Like I could, I could, I could enact, uh, you know, a kind of, a kind of primal justice uh, upon my own, you know, certain circumstances of my childhood you know, I'm very familiar with the world of male violence and, and, but it, but it has never, it has always played out in, uh, like ostensible, uh, equal or, or, you know, even playing field. Uh, and, and so, so yeah, I, I, that was a, that was a pretty stunning moment to realize, to realize what had happened there. And then, and then a much subtler moment, uh, under maybe understood that, maybe understand that, like the form shape and sensation of actually being in my body of having my body as vulnerable as sometimes I feel has nothing to do with what my partner feels when she realizes that she can't walk to the bus stop, uh, in our neighborhood at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and you know, we had this argument about it because I was going out to the airport and I was going to take an early flight. And and you know, I said I'll just walk out to the to catch the nighttime bus. And you know, we're in the East End, in the Upper Beaches, and you know, close to Victoria Park Station, which is sometimes known for you know drug activity and so on. And but my attitude is, this is my city. I can do this. I am. I am. Um, uh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't and not only not only should I not be restricted by fear, but also why should I cede that territory to assaulters right like why should i why should i maybe I would be the person, so there's a little bit of like white knight fantasy going on there too well, right? <laughs> yeah maybe I should be the person who'd be good, you know walking down the street and and so anyway anyway i i'm I'm having this this conflict with my partner about about. Um, whether or not I should do this because she doesn't feel that that it is a safe thing to do. And I'm realizing we have irreducibly different experiences of being human beings. And um, like, yeah, I, I, I think, I think between those two things um, uh, my, I would say that those two things, the, the charging of the cop and, and being, being told by my partner what, what her experience is in a way that that I could finally listen to or I could finally hear and it wasn't you know we're just talking about walking to the bus it's not it's Mm -hmm. not anything anything you know incredibly dramatic but it carries this load of trauma behind it It, it, those two things actually I describe now as spiritual awakenings Mm -hmm. because because um I I didn't learn I you know I studied yoga and buddhism for you know, it's been like 20 years now and more than 20, more than 25 years. And I didn't learn so much about the nature of my existence from anything else, uh, as much as I did from those two conversations, those two incidents.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, they sound like very focusing and locating events. And I want to repeat and amplify what you said about, um, the, the co-occurrence of feeling embarrassed in a way, once you realize actually what's happened. And right. I think that that goes, goes hand in hand. There's just no way, uh, to become aware of those blind spots, uh, in a way that feels like graceful and comfortable. No. And, and no. there's no way to, as a white person listening to this podcast, even who's just learned what, you know, what the talk means and that, POC means people of color you know there's no way to receive this education (laughs) and this information in your body without it feeling uh uncomfortable and 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 sometimes dissonant so I I want to kind of acknowledge anybody who's even listening to what you're talking about who's feeling some somatic response right now like oh my god I didn't know this stuff you know I've never thought about that because um guess what we've all anybody who's offering you some information you haven't heard of had to go through an uncomfortable, um, self-reflection to moment eventually.
2: right? (laughs) Yeah. And I would say, and just to, just to connect, just, just to connect a couple of themes here. Um, you know, one of the things that was so, so, so moving for me in learning about the role of deception on, on a social dynamic level, as you know, key to the functioning of a high-demand group is, is that it, is that it really depersonalizes the event of involvement. Um, you know what Kathleen Mann is saying. I'll come back to I'll come back to to you know waking up in in a social sense in a moment. But what Kathleen Mann is saying about deception and uh, the fact that you didn't join the group but you delayed leaving it is very much pertinent here. Um, you didn't you know I did not I did not choose the indoctrination of my gender and my racial privilege. It was something that I didn't see happening. I didn't I, it was completely utterly invisible and normalized to me and because of that, uh, my embarrassment can be relieved my guilt can be, um, you know, functional uh, to the extent that it's useful, uh, but then uh, I don't have to let it be some sort of, you know, uh, you know, personalized. Oh, I better go to therapy for this to clean up my internal landscape. Kind of thing. Uh, it it can it can um, you know you can get over the guilt response by recognize, recognizing that you were deceived into thinking that your situation was normal. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, it's not, it's, it, it's not, it never was. And, um, you know, normal to you, yes, but, but uh, not normal in the capital N sense, mm-hmm. um, yeah.
1: Yeah, so. thank you for that. Thank you for that reminder, that, that's, that's good medicine. For the self-loathing that can come along right. with it. Now, you've written very extensively about high-demand communities and cults, and and we've talked a lot about um, your strong critique of yoga communities, particularly with regard to sexual abuse and assault. Recently, a lot of your writing is focused on um, a real-time critique of the unraveling of the Shambhala Buddhist meditation community you called it an industry earlier and you not only blog about this but your work's been in these really high profile publications like the walrus like yoga international huffington post etc so i'm curious what is most egregious for you in light of all this from the perspective of your other role as a yoga teacher trainer like how do you stay in relationship with yoga and the wider yoga community in light of all this
2: it's yeah it's such a it's such a great question i it's it's and very hard to answer but i'll give it a shot um i think that what is m- most egregious about um, uh, institutional abuse and uh, high demand group dynamics in yoga and meditation communities is that um, people come to these methods techniques and and um, and gatherings of people with a lot of wounds and with very uh, tender aspirations um, and they they are betrayed in a way that um, I think is a lot more sophisticated than the ways in which um Abuse betrayal happens in non-spiritual, or, or let's say, in in political high-demand groups. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I I say that, and then I hesitate because I think people who have been members of political cults will say that they were just they were they were equally betrayed and deceived and so on. But but there's something there's something particularly um, egregious about being offered spiritual or therapeutic healing and being given the opposite and then being told that you are still being given spiritual and therapeutic healing. Um, So, so there's a, there's, there's a, there's just an ugly, ugly irony there. And, um, you know, I think in yoga and, and Buddhist high demand groups, uh, and, and in groups where we see institutional abuse, uh, and betrayal, um we're also looking at an industry as I call it that uh has risen up in the age of neoliberal self-care and responsibilism. So so these are these these are environments that exist in part not only because of the excesses of consumer capitalism, uh not only because you know a certain you know layer of slice of the population has uh room on their credit card to be able to do workshops and retreats and they can do international travel and whatever it takes to you know take their practice to the next level like that that is all there, there's an economic freedom there that is is you know characteristic of late capitalism and
1: mm-hmm.
2: allows people to to do it but 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 the techniques and the methods themselves are also being offered as a substitute or like um, uh, they're being slid into the gaps of um, what's been torn away in terms of basic liberal democratic ideals of, of, of the social contract. Uh, that have that have been eroding for the last four years. So, mm-hmm. so you know, this is much more of a problem in the states than it is in a place like Canada. And one of the things that I always like to say when I'm in when I'm in training programs is, you know, be careful with be more careful with the charismatic um, American yoga teacher than with the charismatic Canadian yoga teacher because <laughs> because uh, the charismatic American yoga teacher is offering what they offer within the context of complete social contract decay, just taking healthcare for an example. Um, Most yoga teachers that I know in the States uh, are self-employed and marginally insured if insured at all. Uh, And what that means is that practice and self-care for them can take on an even more evangelical charge, uh, not only because they need it, uh, because they have no other, you know, healthcare support, but they also are moving in environments in which people are looking for answers that the society has not provided. Mm. Uh, and they're made self-responsible for those answers. And so, and so, you know, add to that scenario in which yoga and meditation be- begins to become like an ersatz form of health care and self-regulation and then is, you know, commodified by various, um, uh, you know, management styles to increase productivity, um, add to that the specter of an unregulated industry that is rife with institutional abuse. And, and you really have, you know, uh, uh, an interlocking series of problems. Mm-hmm. This thing, this thing that we went to, for self-care because uh, we told ourselves uh, from the 1980s onwards that uh, the nanny state was a bad thing uh, is actually unregulated and because it's unregulated or in part because it's unregulated charisma is the primary coin of its leadership <laughs> and that means that 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 opens that opens the, the the communities themselves that offer these tools to 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 real vulnerabilities of of um, Uh, of relational abuse.
1: Right. Well, and what you're talking about is the yoga version of what, what my husband and I have started referring to um, as the Netflix breaking bad genre, where, people start doing unlawful things because their healthcare bills are out of control. Like, you know, Breaking Bad or this new Good Girls. Like there's this whole kind of genre of Americans who can't get out of hospital debt. And so they get into a life of crime and that becomes sort of funny, but also very normalized uh, and become these sort of charismatic, like thugs or gang leaders, like taking, (laughs) reclaiming agency. And it's this like empowerment narrative. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, you guys. Uh, but the other thing that you said a few minutes ago that like just lit me up with delight and I as I'm thinking about it, I can't quite tell why, but I'd love for you to say more about it was when you said the phrase um, self-care and responsibleism. Yeah. <laughs> what is responsibleism? Because it sounds like a thing that I see everywhere, but I can't define it, but I'm yeah. delighting in it. Can you yeah. just it- clarify that?
2: Right. Yeah, it sounds like yeah a virus that you want to be able to 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 look at under the microscope and and the only you know as far as I know I came across the term first in a fantastic essay that maybe we can link to um, called uh, This Is Not Your Practice Life, uh, which is um, a a critical review of how Lululemon uses marketing sort of vague orientalist uh, triumph individualist marketing language and and attaches it somehow to yoga theory in order to sell lifestyle products and a particular vision of 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 um you know what ends up being entitled uh um, positionality and I will
1: definitely link to that in the show notes
2: yeah but it's two two canadian sociologists Lavrance and lasansky and Uh, As far as I understand it, responsibilism is the neoliberal programming of the citizen to self-monitor and to, and to um, always uh, as the first, you know, line of uh, inquiry to say, what could I be doing better? Um, And how can I, how can I, how can I be more uh, fit uh, in a whole bunch of different ways Uh, fit for, you know, a, gaseous economy fit for uh the precariat fit for um you know all of these changes that are that are coming how can i learn to surf and roll and flow with with you know the the um the the chaos that we're just going to be taking as given because no guarantees anymore right So, so so you so so you know Here's a mindfulness app uh, for you to take care of yourself with. Here is, we're going to do yoga classes on break at Google headquarters. And here is um, uh, here is the Lululemon Manifesto that gives you 18 points of, of, you know, self-directed activity that you can do every day to make sure that you can afford $90 yoga pants, as if that works, right? <laughs> and and so, and so yeah so so uh, responsibilism, as far as I know is is this very broad indoctrination technique uh, that tells the neoliberal consumer that um, uh, that they are in charge of their destinies mm-hmm. and and uh of course, the shadow side of that statement, the thing that people um only really. Uh, as they self-identify on the alt-right will say in public is, and that means if you fail, it's your own damn fault. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're not getting by, if you're not, if you're not succeeding. And then, so, so, but what I like about, what I like about that term is that it's very broad based and, you know, it's, it's abstract and I can see it in a systems theory way, but, but I also like, Feel it as uh, containing containing a number of layers related to some of the privilege issues that we've brought up before, and and as I'm as I'm speaking about it now, I'm thinking about how gendered, uh, powerfully gendered this principle would be that levels of responsibleism uh, foisted upon. Uh, women and the multiple rules of labor that that they're asked to perform uh, is going to add another, you know, sort of depth to to the the self-monitoring and the and um, uh, and then to intersect that with issues of race and class, um, it's going to get heavier all the way down in terms of the social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it 's going, going to cost it 's going to cost you more. the less privilege you have, the more your responsibilism or the society's uh, um, demand that you be responsible is going to cost
1: mm-hmm. so I, th- thank you for bringing this to the collective again as well that, that because one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about uh, high demand groups is because. Uh, when I think about converging emergencies like um the the chaos that can come from social change uh the environmental crises that we're seeing, and I think about sort of the big umbrella term of collapse uh, often the the antidote or solution or one of the medicines we can turn to is community and community is sort of tossed around as this thing like oh it's so important we need connection and community and <laughs> people don't talk so much about how freaking hard it is right like oh yeah i'm just going to like spring up a community around this whatever right and it often is a bit capitalist like you know we we pay to be part of let's say a retreat, I lead these things. So I understand, I'm saying this fully recognizing the hypocrisy and irony of like, you know, charging for the things that I do because I'm trying to find and create and re-nurture or nurture a a re-villaging process. But the thing is, I really do believe in the importance of re-villaging as a notion. I really do believe we have to reconnect to the importance of community and and that we have to do the attachment repair work required to tolerate more obligation to each other and this compassionate care for our neighbor which i think is you know like you pointed out kind of the difference between the american charismatic yoga leader and and the canadian canadians have a certain amount of social safety net still in place where we 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 do have this fundamental structure based on our belief in a compassionate responsibility and obligation to our neighbor. Right. But I do sometimes worry that there's a a blurry line between a high degree of personal and relational and ethical obligation to each other and then these high demand cult communities. And I say that having been a person who you know, has for instance um, gone to extended programs, quote unquote, schools that are about, um, uh, I guess you could loosely call it revillaging or maybe ancestral repair or, you know, trying to cope with the melancholy of being displaced white settler, all that kind of stuff. And And what I find is I'm like, holy shit, people that I consider extremely. You know well educated uh informed, literate on top of things, kind of capitulating to these high demand I don't know what you'd even call it it's so atmospheric, right, but it's like suddenly it's like, wow, everybody's kind of dressing alike, and there's a way of speaking, and if you don't speak that way, you know like. If you don't speak that way then then you're kind of on the outs and if you ask certain questions then you're asking the wrong question or i'm going to answer your question that you should have asked you know that, this kind you, of like mental aikido like so how do we
2: how right do we you're really... how do we know you're really okay. You said so many things there and I want to make sure I don't miss any of them, but like, you're really onto something with affect with, with understanding somatic affect in a group. Mm. And, And there comes a point, I think where anybody involved in an aspirational community or movement might step back and say, why am I mirroring everyone around me? Or what is that thing that that person does when they walk in the room and everybody kind of like mimics it and uh, what is um what what are the keywords here like if we ran if we if we recorded everything that we said for the day and then we ran it through an ai for um for indexing like the top words do we really know what those words mean yeah i'll give
1: you one grief soaked like do oh. people talk like that normally? Like there's these like dog whistle terms that you're like, how come that that particular turn of phrase is like everywhere all of us? Like how and Yeah, you're
2: activating i'm very I'm very happy to say that that is not in my circles. Uh, I have not come across that term, but the ennui with which you say it, I believe it is a huge feature of your west coast life and i and i i i empathize i'm really sorry, I'm really sorry for your for your grief soaked life um, so so okay so but i think i think if we let's take, I think that keyword, um, uh, uh, thought experiment is really important because, um, my bet is that, is that if, if you're in an aspirational community and there is a, uh, a word that comes up, a term that comes up over and over and over again, uh, and you see it at the top of that index of that, at the top of that usage list prevalence list, um, my bet is that you're not really going to be able to define it. And, and my bet too is that because of its indefinability, it's um, going to stop most conversations because there's going to be uh, like a group assumption about what it means, about what, what it means to be grief soaked, for example. But I think the word community itself is kind of like that. It gets used so often and so, uh, um, in such a charged way, with so much freight, um, that it always feels like there's a capital C at the beginning of it, mm. and uh, this is where I go right back to you know my my college days, and I remember how Derrida described um, the transcendental signifier, uh, the the word that. Um, it has been used so often and, and is invested with so much cultural power that it is, first of all, undefinable, uh, but secondly, it's designed to cast a spell over uh, the group of its users uh, uh, who are asked to believe that everybody shares the same definition for it. So, um, and, and when you get things like that, uh, we're, we're not talking about um you know we're not talking about community as something that um uh has i don't know necessarily Local, real-world roots, but something that is invested with a kind of mystique, and as soon as that happens, then we have the commodification problem that you're talking about, mm. uh, and especially in yoga com- yoga communities. I'm going to use the word uh, community itself is kind of the is 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 a buzzword for um, you know uh, effective branding of shared interests and. And I don't, you know, I don't know much about you. You're using the word revillaging, and, and I'm sure there's a huge literature behind it, but I, what I've, what I've noticed in the groups that I move amongst is that, is that there's a huge difference between the people that you do aspirational activities with when you are white and heterosexual and middle-class and, you know, the people that you end up spending time with if, you know, you have a regular job as a transit worker, or if you drive a cab or, you know, if you, if you go to uh, the community center for your fitness needs. And, and so as I think about community community in my own life, I am starting to ask questions about um, why do I want to find like-minded people? <laughs> Why, why do I want to find people who will mirror my own elevated posture and language back to me? Uh, why do I want to be validated by, uh, you know, people who who think that I have good ideas? Why? Why am I not spending more time talking over the back fence with the guy who... I don't know what my neighbor does for a living, honestly. Uh, I know his name, I know how many children he has. Uh, but I don't know his world. Um, now he's white and straight like I am, so if if I want to learn more than that, I know that I'm gonna have to you know break out of the the segregation of my neighborhood. and so I try to do that. but and when I do like I, I play handball at at the at the community center with uh, you know guys who work as security guards and bus drivers and uh, you know and and you know only about twenty percent of the community center is 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 white and and I have this it might be vicarious I might be like a uh, you know a class tourist in a way when I go there but but i I also have the sense of oh i 'm trying to actually form bonds with people in which I'm not trying to sell them shit, including myself. And, mm. and that is totally different from you know, the, most of the experiences that I've had in, in yoga and meditation communities over the, last, over the last 15 years.
1: So what have you learned uh, about how one might avoid the culty path and cultivate the community path. It sounds like there's something about uh, geography, real time, something like that. Could, could you, if you had any advice for somebody who was thinking, oh, I, I do want a sense of belonging, after they've gone through those questions of, well, why do I want people just like me? Do you have any advice for like, okay, if you're now moving into wanting to be in community, uh, what should they watch for so that it doesn't get too culty?
2: um i think i think uh the red flag is the somatic charge um to me anyway it might be different for other people but but like um you know my i i don't know if you if you knew um uh, my late friend michael stone i've um, heard
1: of him uh posthumously
2: yeah. right so so um you know very very complex and um, moving uh, figure, and uh, a tragic death uh, just over a year ago, and uh, I I mourn him and I miss him, um, and uh, I'm not going to I'm not bringing him up in the context of a high demand group, um, but I am going to suggest that uh, that people who were drawn to him were drawn to something radiant uh drawn to something charismatic they were drawn to um the the crackle in the room when he spoke that was his it was his voice it was his body it was his you know uh brilliance uh or his improvisation <laughs> uh and and i would say that that uh, whenever you so he just comes to mind when i when I think about what do we want to be aware of in in aspirational communities in terms of uh, the capacity for power imbalances to grow, mm. because that 's where it starts is, is that is that you know when uh, the, the the leader is felt to be is asked to be performs as if uh, they are some sort of special person. Uh, when, um, and when they do that because they are invested with a kind of internal value that you really can't verify, you know, it's not like, it's not like the leaders of, of yoga and meditation groups, um, are, are, go through peer review or something like that. They don't, they didn't, they didn't, you know, the academic model is actually pretty smart when it comes to, oh, did you have something original to say and can you back it up? Uh, (laughs) And, but, you know, nobody who, who who heads an aspirational community has to do that. And we should think really hard about that. What does that mean? It means that in the absence of, of, of authorization structures, that that charisma, that, that crackle, that brilliance, which is not bad in and of itself, and, and you know, going back into pre-modern times, it would have been the only thing that really adhered groups together in, in these ways. Um, but... But that becomes the only value of validation. The primary coin of the realm of uh, the high demand group is uh, charisma. Hmm. And, and, you know, so, so I would say for the person who, you know, runs across, runs into the aspirational group, um, just ask yourself, you know, who's the person who... Uh, seems to want to be at the front of the room and who is and who is um, behaved deferentially towards um, who who opens their mouth and then everybody goes mm, okay uh, who sits up who, who who enters the room and makes everybody else sit up a little bit straighter, either wanting their attention. Or, or wanting to embody whatever whatever that person has or seems to have, because uh, often often they're performing rather than embodying. Mm-hmm. So, um, those are some start. Those are some starting points. You know, it's like it's like uh, if you know if if some of your some of maybe maybe some of your your listeners can can quickly Google a guy named Adyashanti. Shanti. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know anything about how this guy runs his, how this guy runs his groups. Uh, I don't know how he runs his personal relationships. So I'm not going to say that he runs or he's part of a high demand group. But ask yourself, ask yourself, what gives a person, especially if they're white and male and in their 60s and somewhat handsome, uh, what gives a person the the um, the authority? To sit on a chair in front of a room of 300 people who are quietly gazing at him, waiting for the next thing that he's going to say. Not because he's reading it from notes, but because it's coming out of his innermost selfiness or whatever. <laughs> like, what gave him, what put him there? What put him there? And and if if you really ask that question, you're asking about you're asking about group power dynamics in a very profound way. And I think it might be uh, a bit of a vaccine. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Very good. Very good advice. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, locating this in um, the larger planetary context of climate change because that's kind of my jam these days. Uh I mean it has been for over a decade, but this this episode is sort of part of a I guess you it, I could loosely call it a mini series where I'm really centering this part of my life uh in terms of collapse awareness and and um how myself and my guests are approaching adaptation to changing climate. Do you think much about the converging emergencies of climate change and social chaos and collapse much in your own life?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a great question because it, it, it highlights um, for me a, a, a very basic and um, daily split that I think I experience. which is, so do I think much about it? Yeah, I think much about it. Uh, in what part of my brain, in the part of my brain that I, have uh quarantined off into don't know what i can do uh and i'm going to keep doing what i know how to do well and hope that it helps that other part um but i don't i often don't see the concrete relationship between those things i i i have the sense that i have the sense that that the, the, the professional work that I do in, in yoga and Buddhism communities is, um, you know, even though I try to uh, reach out into the accessibility movement and do as much work as I can in service organizations. And, you know, I love the Yoga Service Council, for example. Um, at the same time, I feel like I'm in a fairly rarefied world that has, you know, little social impact, social and political impact on the things that actually really matter to, uh, you know, the bodies of the people around me. And so, um, so this brings up the question of like, is, is there, is there a relationship between, between yoga and meditation and internal work and self-regulation and social change? And, The person who's educated most on that is a woman named B. Schofield, who, you know, probably about six or seven years ago, finally totally cleaned my clock in some debate about whether or not yoga and meditation practice made you a better citizen. Uh, And the answer is no, it doesn't. Um, Training to be a better citizen and learning from marginalized people makes you a better citizen. That's what, that's the answer. But, but one of the, pernicious things about the industry that I work in is that it it runs on this premise that that you know practice will somehow make you into a more effective, more progressive person. Not everybody believes that, but that's a strong undercurrent. Um, and that's just totally wrong. It's distracting. Um, and so so I, I live with this split, like, I, I feel that I'm, I'm the, the, the earner in, in our family of four now, and I, I know this industry fairly well, and I can, I can consult in it, and I can write about it, and I can interview people within it, and I can shed light in certain areas. But, but I do wonder about its portability, And I hope, and I hope at some point. So you know, in my in my in my wilder uh, um, uh, imagination, um, I sometimes tell myself that doing this work is giving me the skills to be able to write the book about the intersection of the alt right and high demand groups, as expressed through the, um, uh, the 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 ascendancy of somebody like Jordan Peterson. And then that will be, and then I tell myself, well, that will be more useful politically. Like that will reach a larger audience. That will be, that'll have more of an impact. Uh, So, so I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking in that direction, trying to unquarantine that part of my brain that is utterly, absolutely paralyzed and terrified by, by um, every single bit of climate news that I come across.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, one of the um, constellations that I see, if I can make a connection for you, is that often, uh, w- when there is, uh, an experience of dissolution or turmoil socially, uh, it creates opportunities for more zealotry and the deification right. of gurus. And, uh, it would not surprise me if the kind of neoliberal. Uh, late stage capitalism project uh actually did give rise as things get worse to more of that responsibilism and more gurus and more of this um spiritual cleansing through uh Capitalist opportunities for that, right. you know, and so I, I can see how. I, so I'm going to nudge you in that direction <laughs> <laughs> because I do see a very direct correlation between uh, climate change, social turmoil, and um, the rise of gurus.
2: Yeah, um, I, I, I try to um, just, just a, a, just a point. A small point of order: I try to not use the word uh, "guru" um, because of it, it. It will have like a, for some people, it will have like a neo-colonial echo to it, and and it and it um, and really, what it's usually applied to in in yoga and Buddhist communities is a um, uh, a leader who is at best parroting some aspect of an Indian wisdom tradition. <laughs> and so, and so, and so, um, uh, a number of, a number of people have, 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 pointed out in a critical way that the, um, uh, that the term itself is probably best analyzed as, as a, as a product of, of, uh, globalization rather than as a, um, uh, something that accurately describes the the leadership, so I just wanted to throw that in there. I think, I think mm-hmm. it 's a commonly a commonly used term but but thank you for the nudge uh, and I will say and I will say uh, that um, attending peterson 's events uh, is definitely like tending, attending the the charismatic revivalism of, of um, any one of a number of high demand groups. On a somatic level, on a trance level, on on um, uh, on, epistemolo- on, on an epistemological level, uh, people do not show up at his events to um, be given a um, uh, to be given a uh, um, you know a set of critical thinking uh, positions or tools. Uh, they show up at his events to bask in the the social dynamic of uh, of of uh, you know kind of revivalism of of regressed sentiments mm-hmm. and so so yeah like thank yes, thank you for the nudge you know i don 't know how to i don 't know how to generalize it. Um, <laughs> You know, and I don't really want to be like the 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 person who's the sniper from the gallery and says says okay, well, you know, this person is popping up. Let's let's roll out an analysis. Uh, it would be nice. It would be nice if 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 there if I could if I could think of a book proposal that gave some sort of fundamental education that was readable and digestible in in you know, what does it feel like to start to drift into a high demand group and, and what to do about it? I think that would be really cool.
1: Yeah. I'd like that you've just seeded that right there and I'll keep watching for it. I really have appreciated you connecting the dots between the work you've done, uh, with the yoga community, um, meditation communities and, and drawing those parallels over to the rise of of figures like uh, peterson and and your analysis of him in particular i i I can't help but notice that not not only are there uh, similar um, do I have similar experiences of people that like i'm shocked, I'm surprised that they are gravitating towards his work or reposting his work, but they're often the same people that are, you know, in other grief so communities. So I really appreciate that you are casting the net a little wider because it is a, it's a, it's a uh, social and human dilemma. Because it right. is about attachment and it is about our bodies. It's about how we feel when we're you know, basking in the glow of the mystique. So talking a bit about um, bringing that back to, into the body and into how we feel, I, I'm curious how you personally uh, cope with... The the big emotions like grief and rage. I appreciate you sharing the 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 survival rage response of like charging out of your car because I've broken like that too. I literally screamed into a room of people at at a big conference. We were doing a deep democracy process and and just the the amount of like both latent and overt white supremacist thinking. I just got so dysregulated. I literally screamed into the room. I don't want to hang out with idiot white people anymore. (laughs) And I was supposed to be one of the facilitators, but it it like psychologically broke me. And, and, you know, afterwards was like, I'm very sorry what I said was ableist, Um, but I can't say that my sentiment feels any different, you know, but, but, you know, sometimes. Wait,
2: wait, you, 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 so you walked it back like a little bit.
1: Only to one person. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I couldn't walk it back in the room. I just couldn't. I mean, I stayed in the room, uh, but, but yeah, one person said, I, you know, I didn't appreciate, uh, I I don't appreciate being called an idiot. And I said, I, I, because I'm white, I don't appreciate being called an idiot because I'm white. And I said, "Um, you're right. That's an ableist thing to say. And it's not because you're white. It's because of how you're thinking and and you're being right now. And, uh, you know, it's not because, or she said, because of the color of my skin. I said, it's not because of the color of your skin. It's because whiteness is a way of being and thinking anyway. So it was kind of a whole thing. I generally, you know, I have other tools that I use to try to cope with rage. and, And sometimes it just sort of like busts out. So in your not as extreme moments, how do you cope with grief and rage?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I wonder whether I sometimes I honestly wonder whether I'm not, and be and I wonder whether I will follow in the footsteps of my grandfather and my uncles who, you know, develop heart disease very suddenly at a certain point because um, I. I think as I think as a as 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 male identified, I have been trained to um, sublimate uh, grief and rage into work, mm. um, and uh, I've been trained to uh, you know substitute uh, intellectual work for emotional work, and I, I'm no stranger to therapy, and it's been an incredible blessing in my life and and of course yeah I've done a fair bit of yoga and meditation and and uh, I I'm, I'm no stranger to, to to introspection but you can never really know can you um, how you're dealing with um, this this thing uh, which is inseparable from daily living um and so you know you, i'll just say to, to the to the listeners that carmen like sent this this question ahead and I, I was really taken aback i was like wow that's an amazing really really thoughtful question and so i wanted to thank you for asking that um nobody's really asked me anything like that before and uh and what i'd say is that um the the rage i feel I'm able more or less to discharge through, uh, you know, really intense physical activity. Um, that, that is, you know, that's, you know, handball has been really helpful. And there's something about playing handball with guys who don't give a shit about yoga and meditation that is specifically really helpful. And, you know, especially playing handball with um, I don't even know his last name. I call him handball Dave, but he's the guy who, who texts everybody and makes sure that we're there on time. And, and, and uh, I, I missed when, when Michael died, I, I went out to um, Pender Island for the funeral. And so I missed a couple of weeks and, uh, and all he said, when I came back, he said, he said, uh, well, I missed you grasshopper. And, uh, and I said, I said, yeah, I, I, um, and I felt like I was going to cry. Uh, I was right on the edge, and I said, "Yeah, a friend of mine died," and um, he. Uh, and there was a pause, and I felt awkward, and I felt like I should say how, right? Like I, I should, you know, I shouldn't just leave it hanging. And I said, "Yeah, he, um, he was my age, and he, and he died of uh, fentanyl poisoning," and. Dave just looked at me completely blank, totally stony faced. Uh, and then he paused, like he didn't say anything, but he looked straight at me. And then he just handed me the ball. And he said, it's your serve. Hmm. And, you know, this is not like, this is not like a re re-villaging moment. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to have this interaction on hollyhock. Um, you know, this is not, this is, this is, this is, um, this, this is, there was something, there was something normal and repressed and, um, undressed up and untherapeutic and, non-holding spacey, but holding spacey at the same time. And, and yeah, so, so that was, that, that was a, that was powerful. That was, it, he, he allowed me to feel what I was feeling, but not to, but not to perform what I was feeling. And then something like that, I, you know, it's, who knows what the hell he was, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm projecting onto him as much as I would project onto a therapist, I'm sure. But like, But, but yeah, with grief, um, I spend, I spend most of my time interviewing people who have been abused by high demand groups and, um, I'm not a therapist. I don't get to go to a supervisor and ask them how I'm doing. I go to my own therapy, but you know, it's not, you don't get a lot of time with that. And, uh, I think I do another splitting thing to deal with grief. You know, there's there's the part of my brain that is that is um, quarantined off uh, with the echoes of Derek Jensen, you know, wondering why I'm not blowing up bridges. And then there's a part of my brain that I can trip over into and just think about my children, like think about their faces and their hands and their hair and and their jokes. And 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 little Oe learning how to talk, and and Manitoulin Island, and um, so so, I I don't know. I I think that's just. Dis- I mean, it f- sometimes it feels dissociative, uh, but sometimes those two worlds are together, and and I can, and I can also fall asleep with a feeling of grief, but also but also not only holding my children, but also thinking about my partner and whatever incredibly smart thing she said that day or the way she, you know, is able to, to, um, ask me the right question at the right time or, or, you know, or reflect something back to me. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know how I've learned how to be able to do that. Maybe meditation had something to do with it, but I can go to that place. I can go to that place of, of, of secure attachment and, um, and rest there for, for a while, at least a while. Uh, and then, you know, Alex was also telling me, as I told her, you were going to ask me this question. She said, she said, well, you, you also eat a lot of cookies. (laughs) And I said, yeah, that's true.
1: These all seem like very legit responses. So thank you for, thank you for sharing all of that, um, Matthew. Thank you for everything you've shared in this uh, episode. This has been good food for me too.
2: Yeah, me too. Better thank than you. a cookie. So thank yes. you so
1: much for being on the show.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks a lot.
1: Well, that was a super interesting And uh, for me, very satisfying conversation. What uh, a delightful guest, profound thinker. Uh, I mean, this man speaks my mind. And I would like to welcome back to the show another man who speaks my mind, with whom I uh, really enjoy deep conversation, extended conversations, lots of processing and debriefing, uh, Ruben Anderson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show.
0: Hello, world. <laughs>
1: uh, I loved this conversation. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. as Matthew was talking, there were so many times where I was like, oh, I, I think Ruben's <laughs> going to like that. Oh, I can't wait to ask him about that. Uh, mm-hmm. We've listened to this conversation. I, yeah, I feel like I want to listen to it even again. Mm-hmm. But um, wh- what did you think?
0: I really enjoyed it. Um, I didn't, so there's kind of one big thought I have that I would like to talk about, but the, I found it super interesting because in my behavior change research, which is kind of my big body of work, a super important thing was reading a book about cults, which was uh, written by Douglas Rushkoff uh, called Coercion. Um, So that was, it, it was really an important little kind of keystone piece me and that so then here Matthew comes in talking about these high demand situations uh, so that was super interesting um, he had some really great sentences um, talking about um, like it's I kind of want to start always at the back end of things and build back up but I, I don't know quite where to start with his beautiful sentences so he talked about the irreducibly different experiences of being human beings the irreducibly different experiences. Um, and he framed that as, uh, which I really resonated with, as kind of like the white man's realization mm. that th- everyone else has an irreducibly different experience <laughs> than we do. <laughs> uh, and he, he called them spiritual awakenings. And then he leads that on into these other great sentences. Like, I did not choose my indoctrination of my racial and gender privilege. Um... And he talks, he mentions that in terms of getting over the guilt response that uh, white men or, you know, say white people have about racism, men have about sexism and misogyny. So that um, when you realize you didn't choose, um, that you were deceived, you get over the guilt response by realizing you were deceived.
1: Well, and so all of this speaks to why I thought you were going to love this conversation, (laughs) because as you said, it, it has so many parallels to your work in behavior change. And of mm-hmm. course, you're normally talking to rooms full of white men about why isn't your recycling campaign mm-hmm. working after yes. a certain point. And, you know, this is why you as a consultant, you go into organizations that are like, okay, we want to talk about behavior change. And you go in and be like, okay, well, the first thing is, it's yeah. not about education. It's not about, mm-hmm. you know, like hammering. It's not all of these things no, that you're used to. It's about... It's
0: fundamentally about the irreducibly different experience that human beings have yeah and so
1: you came out with like this well actually we came i came up with this phrase (laughs) while we were in the shower about it's about a compassionate systems approach Mm -hmm. and so this is why like so we're i'm doing this kind of mini series on collapse Mm -hmm. and how we deal with like large-scale cooperation dilemmas when we have these irreducible Mm -hmm. uh irreducibly different human experiences Mm -hmm. how do we deal with that. And you've kind of come up with compassionate systems and it's so interesting that Mm -hmm. something about, you've talked about coercion before as a book and cited it with me, but I didn't realize it was actually about cults. Mm -hmm. Um, so I love that there's all these parallels kind of circling back. Mm -hmm. This is why this is relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew there was a threat. (laughs) Yeah. I
0: think, uh, I thinking back the entire book may not be about cults, but there's kind of a significant chunk of it about Mm -hmm. cults. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And the reason, you know it's interesting to try to think of my understanding of behavior through Matthew's words um, you know the reason that recycling systems don't work is because they don't account for the irreducibly different experiences of being human so they're designed by largely white male engineers uh, with no consideration for the irreducibly different experiences of women and children and People that don't make an engineer's salary and people that don't live in an engineer's size home. And have different
1: know. demands on their lives yeah. that are, yeah. yeah. And and so there's these like monolithic systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, of course, anyway, it's a whole different podcast to talk yeah. about like yeah. compassionate systems. But um, that compassionate approach of recognizing that like... Oh yeah, I didn't sign up to be in this abusive relationship. I didn't sign up for this high demand community. Mm-hmm. I signed up cuz I was interested in deal in like exploring grief or something. Yeah, but then so... I delayed the leaving of it cuz actually it's hard to get out because there's all these like atmospheric mm-hmm. c- things that are occurring that make me kind of question like is is it me? Am I mm-hmm. am I faulty? Um, and, he
0: and... he quotes um, the person who came that he got this from. So I wrote it down. It's uh, Kathleen Mann, and uh, she said, "People don't join cults; they delay leaving organizations that had misrepresented themselves." Mm
1: hmm. Mm hmm. Well, and I think this is this is so relevant to the uh, white supremacy question, right? Mm-hmm. So I I I think one of the reasons. Um, Well, I shouldn't say the reasons, but one of the things that people who are white, who are settler, don't realize is that they have been deceived Mm -hmm. through their education, through Um, our legal system, through kind of the the propaganda of capitalism, whiteness, neoliberalism, all of that, Mm -hmm. um, to believe that we are all equal, that we are all, we just have to bootstrap, we all have the same opportunity. And once you realize, oh my God, Mm -hmm. I have been lied to by every institution Mm -hmm. um, since the moment I was born, Mm -hmm. things have been invisibilized to me, then I think it's much easier to start to want to leave, you know, capital W whiteness or mm-hmm. leave capital C capitalism and, and mm-hmm. unhook. Um, yeah. But it's the seeing what ha, what is actively, relentlessly being invisibilized for you mm-hmm. and being told that you are the one who is not, mm-hmm. um, functioning. You're the one who doesn't get it, that it's your problem, that, that responsibilism. Oh God, I loved that. Mm -hmm. He said it and I was like, I don't even know what you mean, but I feel like I know what (laughs) you mean and I love it. Say more. Yeah.
0: I, I wrote that down as well. Um, the neoliberal self care and responsibilism. Uh, And then he said one more thing, which was the neoliberal programming of the citizen to self-monitor, which is Mm -hmm. what you were just talking about, is making this about the individual, Mm -hmm. the individual's flaws instead of the physical system or or social system's flaws. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so for the the thing that, for for me, as you said, uh, you invented the term compassionate systems, which I apply to things like recycling, that the reason, you know, if we want recycling to work better, We need to make the operational system more compassionate and more uh, respectful of the reality of human beings' mental capacity, physical capacity, their social capacity, you know. So until we're actually truly loving of people, uh, we're going to keep designing systems that are fundamentally abusive of people Mm -hmm. as our current recycling system is, you know, as our current whatever, you know. As our current Pick a system. electoral system is, <laughs> you know, all these <laughs> systems that are uh, that are actually abusive. They're um, very hateful. They're, they're um, of human like, nature. Of, of human beings. They're, human they're misanthropic. Beings, yeah. 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 Um. So for me, Matthew just kept kind of uh, illustrating. He kept drawing out new examples of how compassion actually makes more sense. Mm. So the the people don't join cults. They delay leaving organizations that had misrepresented themselves. So we tell all these stories about people that the people who join cults are weak um
1: yeah they join for the that's the first thing yeah yeah there was no you know but but yeah but deception. you don't you don't actually
0: join you no. just you just go to yoga yeah you just go to yoga class yeah that's a good thing a... right yeah. Yeah. yeah so you you, you take this meditation. active positive step mm-hmm. uh which is not a joining of any horrible organization mm-hmm. right Um, we talk about addicts as being, um, uh, weak Mm -hmm. or, you know, pathetic human beings. We talk about various groups of people as being lazy or stupid or whatever, you know, um, we talk about apathy a lot. Like you, that's rolled out. Like, why don't people recycle? Why don't they drive less? Why don't they care about the climate? Oh, it's because they're apathetic, you know? So it's all these judgment words of, um, of humanity. Right. And let's
1: be clear. People are being deceived. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Well, people... Yes, people are being deceived. So that's the kind of the... the, His contribution. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, my perspective is that people also have a very limited capacity. We have Mm a... We're only awake for so many hours of the day. We can only think for many fewer hours of the day than that. You know, Mm -hmm. we have physical limitations to what we can lift, what we can carry, how far we can run. How much we can think. And how much we can think. We have a physical limitation to how much we can think. So, if you start looking, you know, if you take as your assumption that everyone is... almost everyone, ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of people are, are fundamentally good people that want to be good people, want to be productive members and contributing members of society, don't want to cause harm, are trying to do the right thing, <laughs> you know, and then you start looking for... it's like, okay, so if that's our base assumption, And then, you know, so then how do you explain intravenous drug addiction? And it's, oh, it's because of actually extreme trauma, Mm -hmm. deep abuse. That's perpetuated
1: and uh, revisited again and again by systems Mm -hmm. and um, the stories we tell.
0: Yeah. And Um, then I I, want to go back a little bit, if I can interrupt you there, is that, you know, so then again, the... He talks about the guilt, getting over the guilt of, say, uh, of being white or being male. And I I think that, again, it's like, it's not that white men are bad, but they have been indoctrinated into a system. They are operating, they are operating properly.
1: He's he's the word being trained. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So so it's not just about individual will. yeah, Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, white men operate properly within... A, a psychopathic system.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's working perfectly yeah. and turning out more psychopaths. Yeah. Um, I, I also, I kind of I, I want to um, steer this back a uh, little bit. I want to point out something that I, I didn't say in the interview with Matthew, but I was thinking quite a bit was um, something I noticed not just in high demand groups, but in contexts where there is potential for large amounts of followers or like the potential for these high demand groups. Um, the incidents that I see so frequently is that the the fellow at the mic is, as Matthew said, a white man of a certain age, uh, handsome, and he's in this, uh, don't ask me questions. I'm I, he's in the trance mm. and he's speaking off the top of his head. And I've seen this with people who you know who are supposed to do that, like uh, great poets, you know David White. Mm. But I see uh, women who, and they're of different ages, my peers, but also younger women, older women. But they mm. just love a man of a certain age who's read a lot of books <laughs> and can, like, recite poetry, right? Because mm-hmm. there aren't many of them. My friend Carolyn, I was telling her about this. I'm like, yeah, I can't help but notice that these high demand groups are run by men who mm-hmm. have read poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, yeah, but if Reuben got up... And I was like, oh, my God, with his mellifluous voice? Like, yeah. Like, you know, beast of honey, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, but that this is why I am uh,
0: uh, beast and nectar
1: Beast to nectar let's just be very clear oh even that is charming But you you know that because you're a beekeeper um, Beast to nectar it's it's true that there is something that uh, that expression that mythopoetic expression of masculinity that it has become so rare mm-hmm. uh is like irresistible in uh patriarchal culture women can't help it mm-hmm. and people that I like no one respect but when when I hear like who they like who they love who they're following I'm like oh what mm-hmm. do you know you're falling in love again with another mm-hmm. you know man with um, like another silver fox who mm-hmm. gets us into trance and we like yeah. the feeling and there's something funny about that that I haven't gotten into but it reminds me of attachment stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like maybe some typical daddy stuff, but it's also <laughs> something about wouldn't it be nice if the patriarchy could be gentle? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like wanting to be taken care of or something, mm-hmm. but it's so dangerous. It's mm-hmm. so dangerous because this I feel is so dangerous yeah. because there is a we all have internalized training of mm-hmm power and rank and all this kind of stuff. And, and we're just, we're so conditioned and it's so familiar that we do, we, we create the pedestals. We create these things unconsciously. And, Mm -hmm. and so this is why like, you know, my friend Holly and I talk about like, I just, if I can avoid it, I don't give my money to white men. Mm -hmm. I want to redistribute wealth and I want to check myself because, Mm -hmm. um, Because this is a danger and we see it everywhere, even with the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. It's like, whoa, this seems like a really great program, but I can't help but notice everybody's white and the person at the mic is an old dude Mm -hmm. of, you know, with long hair and... He's silver and he speaks articulately.
0: Yeah. Um, so let me give me give me a little bit of a leash here, Carmen. Okay. Let me let me respond to that because I th- I think you're right, and you and I have talked about this in a way that I'm I would like to refer to you specifically in just a minute. Um, I think if if I if I again as I just said, like if we look at something and try to find the compassion through it, mm-hmm. um, I would guess that the draw to the the old white man at the mic is uh, a lack of elderhood it's an impoverishment uh-huh. of elderhood right mm-hmm. and what we actually want is more and better eldering
1: yeah but you, it gets okay, pretty no, meta uh, uh, when I, they, I, they're uh, talking about grieving a lack of elderhood i
0: asked you to give me some leisure <laughs> sorry I know. okay go ahead. um so because uh, i'm gonna lose my train of thought um you can see the impoverishment of the system of elderhood in that it should be inconceivable, inconceivable for an elder to then have sex with someone who is so gaga over them, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is the condition that Matthew is talking about so much. Mm-hmm. That is not a healthy system of elderhood, you right. know? So definitely what we want is, uh, is a healthy um, integration of elderhood in our society, which we truly don't have. We don't have this kind of stores of wisdom and experience and nuance and etc. Um, the thing that you and I have talked about, uh, is that this, this wise person at the mic, this wise man at the mic isn't a bad thing. The thing that is bad is that it is inconceivable that it would ever be a woman.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, and so, and we, we know, you know, we know a man at the mic and we know women who are his close students and it's inconceivable that they would ever take the mic. And Much they, younger men think that they have a role at the mic.
1: Yes, yes. And the, th- the other thing too is that, and if those women did take the mic, mm-hmm. they would have to do it very differently yeah. in order for them to receive the adulation mm-hmm. that the ma- man at yeah. the mic has. And and what feels so like painful for me in mm-hmm. those rooms is, is just how quickly yeah, yeah men and women alike are like yeah but he's so charming and funny mm-hmm. like they just lay down that it's like no yeah. no, no 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 there's some problems here <laughs> yeah, but, and sure. and also mm-hmm. i will say that it's very rare um so i agree with what you're saying and it's a much more compassionate lens to take that like mm-hmm. we shouldn't have a problem with an elder at the mic um sharing wisdom absolutely we shouldn't have a problem um, and one of the red flags that I just want to like throw up there that mm-hmm. I've seen so many times is like even the most meta, mm-hmm. self-aware, well-located, intersectional in this moment in history mm-hmm. that I've been able to be in the room with them when asked, so where are the women in your stories? Mm-hmm. Or so... To a man, Mm -hmm. there is a defensive, well, you just don't get it. Mm -hmm. And so then when Matthew says, there's a kind of mistake that's a little ineffable and it kind of comes across as the, well, you just don't get it. Mm -hmm. It's it's so heartbreaking Mm -hmm. and so disappointing. It's just like, oh, everything in me just drops Mm -hmm. and, you know... I, I'm kind of processing, you, you and I have personal experiences with this, mm-hmm. but I've had it also when we weren't together. It was so wonderful for you and I to have both be in the same room at the same moment and mm-hmm. be like, oh, it's happening again. Right. Um, so anyway, it's, it, it was so refreshing mm-hmm. to be able to hear Matthew's analysis, and I'm super happy to be able to share it with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so listeners, if you'd like to hang out with Ruben and I while we continue to parse out the nuance of cultivating community without becoming a cargo cult uh, in the age of collapse. (laughs) And and if you wanna process your eco grief and climate despair uh, with like-minded people and learn how to co-regulate without any demand or request or even subtle atmospheric pressure for you to grow your hair long like Reuben or start talking (laughs) like me, uh, why don't you meet us on Cortez Island at Hollyhock and we'll try to gather Uh... In a non-culty way, for <laughs> ritual practice for the urban homestead. Homestead. Um, it's happening in September. Mm-hmm. Get all the information at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time. Take care.
0: Bye bye.